This Dharma Talk was recorded live at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. If you enjoy these talks and wish to support the temple and its offerings, please visit austinzencenter.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Greetings to the Tenzo out in the foyer. I'm expecting she's going to make a quick escape at some point and stir something. I hope um, you enjoyed a day of less talking yesterday. I noticed that when we say we're not going to talk, we tend to write more notes. My trash can is full of sticky notes, <laughs> people handing to me. It's, it's interesting to watch what happens when we're restricted, how we find our ways to work around it. So back to lots of words. I'm giving the third of uh, four talks today. I'll give the last one tomorrow. And uh, my intention was to focus on what we centered the whole ongo about this fall, which was our Zen ancestor, Chinese ancestor, Sekito Kisen, and his teachings and their uh, fundamental importance for our practice. And so after the last talk, which always now, different day, seems like a long time ago, on Song of the Grassroof Hut, uh, I wanted to continue a little bit with that text um, and the Sandokai. Oh, and by the way, I, I, uh, I'm sure I asked the question before, but I forgot. So I asked Linda's Roshi uh, again before we did the uh, memorial for Suzuki Roshi. Why do we chant the Sandokai for Suzuki Roshi instead of the Daihi Shindarani? And she said, because it was his favorite. <laughs> it was one of his favorite teachings. So it just seemed auspicious that we were chanting it again for Suzuki Roshi yesterday morning. As I mentioned, the Sandokai is included in the standard Soto Zen chant book for daily services, but the Song of the Grassroot Hut is not. And in our own lineage, this is changing with more temples and Zen centers uh, chanting it regularly. And I hope that our discussion of it the other day may have given you uh, an appreciation of that teaching and not just its beautiful imagery and peacefulness, which are definitely aspects. Um, so to do some more context, to situate Sekito's teaching in the unfolding of our Zen Dharma, and I'm going to do this for um, a little bit and then turn to a different topic after. So it's our friend, Reverend Kokio Henkel, who brought to my attention at least that the first time this important instruction, turn around the light to shine within, then just return, that formulation that's first found in the Sawanka, in the grassroot hut. So I wanted to turn to some other texts that set the context for this usage. Uh, <clears throat> and that's what I'll do now. And one is the poem that we chanted this morning, the Shin Shin Ming, much longer. Uh, text, the Chin Chin, Chin Chin Ming, which is also translated as trust in mind or faith in mind. There are a number of translations for the title. This is by the third, said to be, by the third Chinese Zen ancestor, Zhangji Sengkan, whom we chant as Kanchi Sosan Dai Shou. <laughs> we did this morning. 
he died in 606 of the Common Era. So he lived before Sekito, or so we think. Now, there is some dispute, <laughs> it's a big dispute, about whether he actually wrote this text that we call the Shen Shen Mei, or when that text was written. Some uh, scholars argue that it was actually written uh, in the middle of the Tang Dynasty later. And there are some who say, well, he might have been responsible for the sort of core of that text, and it was elaborated and embroidered upon later to become the longer uh, text that we have. And it fits into a genre, I guess we'll call it a genre of poetry that we could call songs, poems or songs, like we were talking about the other day, um, about enlightenment. And the uh, monk and scholar Mu Song speaks about this a little bit in the introduction to his book, Trust in Mind. How many of you have encountered this book before? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I really recommend it if you are in the least bit interested about in this text or if it speaks to you. Yes. He spoke here, actually. He Did gave you? a workshop here in, like, wow, when was that? Like, sometime in the late 2000s. Huh? About 2005. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or twice, actually. Yeah. Excellent. This is the history of Austin Zen Center that's lost in the mists for me. <laughs> um, thank you for bringing that up. Barbara. Oh. Barbara, yeah. Um, this book was published around then, I believe. Uh, it's been out for a while, so that may, may have been on the tour. What was it? Many copyrights here, but not that one. Yeah, 2000 something. Unfortunately, the uh, the library stamp is right over the copyright, <laughs> right exactly over it. But yeah, it, it, it's been out for a while. I pulled it out for this talk. I, I read it when it came out, and I don't remember when that was, but a while. Everything seems closer in time than it actually is. I keep thinking, when was that, five years ago? And it's, no, it's 20 years ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, he talks about the uh, the attribution of this poem to one or another authors. And he also talks about this genre of, or this tradition, maybe it's better to be called, called the tradition of poems in praise of enlightenment or that's that are written or spoken in response to an enlightenment experience of waking up that go back. Actually, you could, you could say it's all kind of the same thing, starting with the, the Terigata, the songs of awakening by women ancestors and male ancestors going back to the Buddhist time. And um, we also talked about how the song of the grassroots hut is, you know, a, a song, a poem. Um, so this one is a really long <laughs> such poem. So I wanted to concentrate on, in keeping with this theme about turning around the light and uh, shining it within, um, this line in the Chin Chin Ming, which we chant as returning to the root, we get the essence. Following after appearances, we lose the spirit. One moment of inner illumination, which is the word hensho of echo hensho, goes beyond appearance and emptiness. And the Reverend Kokio uses the translation. This is his kind of 
revision of that translation. To return to the root is to find the meaning, but to pursue appearances is to miss the source. At the moment of turning the light of awareness around, intro, there is going beyond appearance and emptiness. And this is the first time in the extant literature that the just the word hensho is used. So echo hensho is in the Song of the Grassroot Fut, and hensho is in this text, the Shin Shin Ming. So this is what Mu Song says about these lines. And in his uh, commentary, he renders them as to return to the root is to find the meaning, but to pursue appearance is to miss the source. So this is what he says about the root, this word root. Inner silence is the root before it was covered up and marginalized by linguistic constructs that in turn conditioned us to accept those constructs as reality itself. So turning us away from words, from language. He says, in the modern age, more than ever before, we have been trying to supply meaning to life through achievement, through acquisitions, through status and position, through goals and plans, but we are hardly aware that we are always dealing with the appearance of things rather than their inner reality. Therefore, meaning is assigned to appearances and to appearances as reality. Does this sound familiar to you? A conditioned compulsion to supply meaning compels us to make emotional and psychological investments in the appearance of things, and such investments eventually lead to separation into self and other, to opposite thinking. These investments and pursuits may serve for a while, but eventually we find them to be hollow. They do not supply us with what we need in order to feel whole and complete. And he says, uh, I'm skipping, he says, this line about the return to the root, this line in the poem highlights the inner tension between the teaching, Buddhist teaching, this is general Buddhist teaching, of shunyata, or emptiness, and the teaching of compassion, karuna, in the Buddhist tradition. He says, shunyata wisdom points to the root of things, emptiness points to the root of things, their lack of own being. Yet all the teachings of Buddha and other teachers also display compassion for all things in the world. This is why we're constantly being told, don't get stuck in emptiness. Song says, this is a paradox that is resolved through the simultaneous practice of wisdom and compassion, simultaneous. This is the basic template of the Bodhisattva model of Mahayana Buddhism. A Bodhisattva is active in the world, motivated by compassion for all beings while being grounded firmly in the wisdom of shunyata or emptiness. Acts of compassion have no meaning in the sense of validating anything in the Bodhisattva. Acts of compassion are just acts of compassion and do not need a reason for their justification. Somebody that I saw a couple of days ago in a meeting asked me, like, 
why do we water some plants and pull weeds? Why do we do these things? I think this kind of speaks to this. Right? They become truly acts of compassion when the bodhisattva is simultaneously aware that these acts of compassion in samsara are just as empty as anything else, including the bodhisattva herself. Buddhist traditions, including Zen, were creatively and gloriously, gloriously with this paradox. I think that's very helpful, that comment. So this is an earlier, we think, um, expression of what all of these texts are kind of pointing at in their own way over and over, different teachers, one after the other. Um, some more about Hensho. The sixth Chinese ancestor, Hui Neng, or Daikan Eno, who also is extremely mysterious and has many apparently fictional aspects uh, recorded about him, um, but who is nevertheless is an important ancestor of ours. <clears throat> he also used this word, Hensho. Um, and remember that this is the master with whom Sekito first practiced when he was just a, uh, an adolescent. So this is uh, Daikan Eno, the Platform Sutra. When you do not think of good and do not think of bad, what is your original face? What I have told you is no secret. If you reflect inwardly, that's the translation of this word again, Hensho, the secret is in you. Observe your own original mind. Don't cling to the appearances of external things. And I'm going to go on a little bit with this. <clears throat> Linji, the founder of Rinzai Zen, whom I mentioned in the last talk, and who died in 866, so uh, after Sekito, he says, you must right now turn your light around and shine it on yourselves. This is echo and show. Don't go seeking somewhere else. Then you will understand that in body and mind, you are no different from the ancestors and Buddhas. You are no different than the ancestors and Buddhas, and there is nothing to do. <laughs> Guess we can all go home. <clears throat> and also in the Rinzai lineage, um, Yuanwu Kekin, <clears throat> who's known as Engo in Japanese, and who lived in, uh, we hear, from 1091 to 1157, so going further in time, to close to Dogen's time, <clears throat> he compiled the collection of koans called the Blue Cliff Record, <clears throat> which Dogen schlepped back from China. <clears throat> There's some stories about how Dogen managed this. He, he copied the whole thing in one night, supposedly, just before going home. The most important thing, this is, uh, again, Yanwu, Ango, the most important thing is for people of great faculties and sharp wisdom to turn the light of mind around and shine back at Kohensho and clearly awaken to this mind before a single thought is born. So Wu Song says, you know, before language, even before, you know, the kind of way in which human beings think, he says, go directly to your personal existence in the field of the five aggregates, the five senses, <clears throat> turn the light around and reflect back. 
Echo Hensho. Your true nature is clear and still, and as it is, empty through and accept it. Or as Sekito says, open your hands, right? accept it, let everything go. <clears throat> when you see clearly this true nature, this true nature is mind, and this mind is true nature. It is called the ever-abiding <laughs> fundamental source. So I think this teaching also relates to the others that I've been quoting. <laughs> now, yesterday I noted that the Reverend, Reverend Connolly uh, declared that Shakyamuni Buddha didn't teach anything about the source. Like, don't go looking for explanations, is how Reverend Connolly understood that. <clears throat> and I want to give some credit again to uh, Kokyo Henkel in tracing the mentions of Echo Hensho, which I've been drawing on for this talk and the last one. He quotes the Buddha's practice instructions for meditation. And I think uh, for us, practicing Zazen, um, this is worth bearing in mind, at least for now. When you sit down, forget it. <clears throat> he quotes the Buddha's practice instructions for meditation, which are in the Samdhi Nirmana, Samdhi, sorry, can't speak, Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra. And this is the translation. Attentively meditate on the inner stream of the meditating consciousness. This is the Buddha speaking. Continually focus attention on meditation, on the uninterrupted mind, the mind that focuses on images. This is called shamatha, or what we sometimes translate as calming or stabilizing uh, meditation. <clears throat> then he says, meditate on the one-pointedness of mind this means realizing that images concentrated on are only consciousness. On realizing this, to meditate on suchness. So there's three things. This means that image, sorry, excuse me, this is called the union of shamatha and vipassana, right? Stabilizing and calming and insight or calm abiding and insight, that's the end of the quote. And this is often how uh, Zazen, our practice of Zazen is characterized as the union of Shamatha and Vipassana. So there in, the, in this early sutra, <coughs> what we're doing, our Zazen is actually described or instructed by the Buddha. And <clears throat> About 400 years after this, after the Sandhya Sutra, um, we have a text called The Secret of the Golden Flower, which is another somewhat mysterious Taoist-influenced poem, um, which I recommend reading, even though it's a little bit uh, possibly corrupt text. But anyway, the turning around, says The Secret of the Golden Flower, the turning around is stopping, or shamatha. The light is seeing, vipassana. Stopping without seeing <clears throat> is called turning around without light. So if you just get quiescent, <laughs> but don't have any insight, 
you're in a cave. Seeing without stopping is called having light without turning it around. Remember this. If you can look back again and again into the source of mind, whatever you are doing, not sticking to any image of person or self at all, then this is turning the light around wherever you are. This is the finest practice. And then there's Hongzhi, <clears throat> who lived in the century before Dogen. <clears throat> um, and I think this is uh, maybe not the first place that I really started trying to practice with taking this uh, backward step, but um, that's another piece of this instruction. Um, he says, Hongzhi, take the backward step and directly reach the middle of the circle from where the light issues forth. He says, when the six senses return to their source, so that's the what we think of as the five senses plus our cognitive minds, they are thoroughly effective and clear without compare. When the physical elements return to their source, the whole body is pure or unified or non-dual. When you hear pure, that's, those are other things you can understand. Pure without a particle of dust, <clears throat> nothing is separate from it. Thus, you manage to cut off causation to interrupt its continuity, merge all time and obliterate all differences. Understand, asked Hongzhi. A single particle of matter involves infinite worlds. A single instant of thought transcends infinite eons. Also what we heard this morning in the Xin Xin Ming. A single body manifests infinite beings. A single actuality includes infinite Buddhas. This is why it is said, universal complete awareness is my sanctuary. Body and mind live at peace in the knowledge of essential quality. This state cannot be limited spatially or temporally. Self and other combine, merging like water and milk. Center and periphery interpenetrate reflecting each other like images in mirrors. So these are all just things to like wash over you. What does Dogen say? In his basic and early instructions for Zazen, which he recommends to all persons, the text entitled Fukan Zazengi, which I think we're chanting tomorrow, he says, you should stop the intellectual activity of pursuing words and learn the stepping back, the backward step of turning the light around and shining back. Body and mind will naturally drop off and the original face will appear. Think of what doesn't think or think of not thinking. How do you think of what doesn't think? Or how do you think of not thinking? non-thinking. This is the essential art of sitting meditation. So many practice instructions from many teachers over hundreds of years, 
all of them drawing on each other, referring to the Buddha for their ultimate authority, but expanding the teaching, unpacking the teaching over all this time in their own way, which is really, you know, what we need to do, make it our own. Um, my bookmark, I'll be lost it. Yeah, and I did want to say one other thing um, about the trust in mind uh, text, the Shin Shin Ming. Um, and it, it also is about the Buddha because I think this unfolding of the Dharma that we have been doing for 2,500 years, we being all practitioners, sometimes makes it seem like there are contradictions between the early teachings or different schools of teaching um, and what we're doing as well in the West now. And this is um, a comment by a Theravadan monk whom some of you probably know about Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a modern scholar and practitioner um, and translator of Pali texts. So the earliest texts that we have that, that are the, the Buddha's teaching. And he points to the Buddha having done all these years of extreme ascetic practices, six years, right? Which you probably know from all the stories that you've read about Buddha's life. You know, he leaves the palace, he goes on his quest. And one of the things that he undertakes is complete denial, almost to the point of dying of his body. And so, he says, after these six years of extreme practices, the Buddhist search took an altogether new turn. He went back to the contemplations that he had been practicing before, practices that were intended to transcend sensory experience. Remember that the texts we've just heard are, you know, like, go back to the five, go back to your experience, your, the five skandhas, the six, the six skandhas. But the Buddha made a radical change in his technique. Instead of looking for an ultimate truth, he focused on rendering the process of contemplation more morally oriented. So according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, actually he's already kind of setting up the Bodhisattva, right? Instead of the Arhat who just seeks enlightenment for his own sake. And he decided that the initial state of contemplation is one in which a person has to refrain from pleasures of sense and unwholesome tendencies. So you can enjoy a state of joy and happiness that are qualitatively different from those associated with pleasures of sense. And this sharpened his reflective and investigative tendencies or capacities. And he said, Realizing the danger of trying to find reasons and explanation, he suspended reflection and investigation, which left him with this serene feeling of joy and happiness. But he thought these could lead to obsessions that becloud one's perception. So he suspended joy and happiness. And this resulting state was one of the, the clear unprejudiced perception, just perception. And Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the Buddha used a term of rare occurrence in the pre-Buddhist languages in India, namely upekka. 
And we generally in English call this equanimity. People ask a lot about equanimity. It's a term of more ethical import, but highlights a stance that is more uh, about a kind of right understanding. And Bhikkhu Bodhi suggests translating this not as equanimity, but as consideration. He says, this is because a prejudiced mind, a mind that has already been made up, cannot consider anything that is contrary to its accepted views. And this is what a mind that is awake, these are the characteristics of it, which is why I'm uh, dwelling on this. He says, a considering mind, a mind of equanimity, considering mind is one that has become pliable. And these are all Sanskrit terms that he's translating. Pliable, stable, flexible, and reached a state of not fluttering. Not fluttering. This is a concentrated mind without blemish, purified or unified and cleansed with all defiling tendencies gone. And Bhikkhu Bodhi comments, it is almost difficult to think of the salutary effects of adopting such a perspective in the investigative processes relating to science, technology, medicine, economics, political science, and sociology, <laughs> to name a few. And he says, you know, in the context of the modern world, our way of thinking and the way we have constructed our regimes of knowledge are based on inflexible and rigid dichotomies such as true and false, existent and non-existent. He says, absolutum of some sort is the inevitable result. This is the end of the quote. The good and the peaceful that the Buddha attained under the Bodhi tree permeated all his teachings, whether they pertain to explanations of the physical or objective world, the human personality, social, political, and moral life, as well as the use of the most important method of communication, namely language. <clears throat> yep. that, all right, those are some further thoughts about Echo Henshaw and Zazen and what it is we're doing here. And before I take up the other topic I wanted to just bring up briefly today, do you have any questions or comments or that I can't answer, questions I can't answer? Yeah. Um, when you were reading a quote from the book of Zengi, you said, um, think of things that don't think. It's kind of it's right before you said things are not thinking. And that, that's not in there. It's that think of uh, things that don't think. I think of things that don't think, but it is a little different than the translation we well, used. Hey, oh, oh, I think it was, um, it might have been uh, from Kokyo, who <laughs> often modifies translations a little bit from his own reading of the characters. You should stop the intellectual activity of pursuing words and learn the stepping back of turning the light around. Right. Think of what doesn't think. Anyway, I I love it. It, it helped uh, understand think of not thinking a lot. How do you think of what doesn't? So that's a question that 
um, it comes up all the time too. So just hold in your consciousness the question, constantly inquiring, what, what is this? What is happening? Who is this? And, you know, who, who is thinking? Who is thinking about the person, the, the, the entity that's thinking, right? It's like he just recedes and recedes, keep stepping back. <laughs> Think of what doesn't think. Okay, so I was thinking about the clock that I was watching and I just figured I was fine out. The clock just does its job and it never misses a beat and it swings around. Like the earth turning or all the natural functions that just happen. Anyway, of course I was thinking, but. <laughs> Naturally, the clock's <laughs> battery runs out, and the Earth, I'm sure, is imperceptibly slowing down. We just don't notice years from now. Yeah, but we we think it just keeps turning. Other comments? Yeah. Oh, clarification. So, uh, can you redefine Henshaw like an echo Henshaw? Yeah, I'll try. Um, so. Hensho seems to be earlier, or at least um, there's turning around and shining a light within. So the turning around part is one, and the shining a light is kind of the, the corollary to it. And then, so, then we add stepping back, right? Stepping back, which I which I finally uh, paid more attention to than just turning around the light and shining it within. We're always directed outward, right? But Dogen also tells us about studying, to study the self, right? right? To, is to be actualized by the 10,000 things. Stop carrying yourself forward and experiencing things. Let things come forward and experience themselves. That's awakening, mm -hmm. right? So we're always reaching, we're always moving forward. We're always grasping. So it's the echo Henshaw is turning around the light to shine within, mm -hmm. and then is taking the backward step an addition to that, or a slight turn on echo Henshaw? I think it's a slight turn on echo Henshaw. I'd have to look again at the characters. To... You don't know anything about characters. What? Is that Bunkai? <laughs> Bunkai's challenging me. I can look up kanji with the best of them. Come on. <laughs> I don't know the language. Back on mute. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If anybody wants to look up kanji, it's, it's relatively easy to do, but it, to choose which meaning requires some understanding of the context, I think. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so every time I try to shine a light on a branching stream, I keep getting a different picture. So what do I do with the album? <laughs> Stop constructing things. Forget the album. <laughs> Stop collecting. Yeah. yeah. I really liked the quote that you read from Trust the Mind uh, when you first. I think it was the first quote that you read. And it was about how our mind constructs. And it reminds me of other studies on that subject. Um, 
And I'm wondering if you could read it again. Would you mind terribly? Was it uh, uh, like two or three lines right at the right at the beginning? The first reference. Okay. Uh, yeah. Returning to the root, we get the essence. That one. I'm not sure. Um, returning to the root, we get the essence. Following after appearances, we lose the spirit or we lose the source. Spirit's kind of a funny choice of word. We lose the source. One moment of inner illumination, that's Hensho, illumination, goes beyond appearance and emptiness. That's the one that I think I, um, and then Kokyo had a slightly different translation. Is it sounding like what you were looking for? No, but that's okay. This is good too. Um, I mean, that Xin Xin Ming has many good things in it. I think bef before I memorized the um, Song of the Grassroof Hut, I was fairly obsessed with the Xin Xin Ming. There's just things keep leaping out at me. Wander at ease without vexation. All kinds of, all kinds of bits keep jumping out. Um, so I, I wanted to, it, it occurred to me today as breakfast was being served and we were doing this kind of intimate thing of eating together right next to each other. Everybody can see exactly what you're doing, mistakes you're making, uh, <laughs> how much you're eating, <laughs> uh, whether you're, you know, saying yes or no to something like wholeheartedly or not so wholeheartedly. And so I, I wanted to just, I don't think I've ever done this and maybe other teachers here have, but do you, how many of you are familiar with the Dogen's instructions to the cook, to the Tenzo? Many of you, right? Okay. How many of you know about the Ushuku Hanpo? You're, are, <laughs> am I giving you a headache? <laughs> uh, am I giving you a headache? <laughs> So how many hands is that? A few of you, yeah. So this is the Dharma for taking food. And it's conveniently translated for us in this wonderful book, which I recommend, uh, Dogen's Pure Standards for the Zen Community, the Eihei Shingi, right? This, these are his regulations, instructions, guidelines for Eihei-ji Monastery which he modeled after what he experienced in China. And there are a bunch of these. I mean, every, we have Zenkei Ji Shingi, actually, but it's especially important for a monastic community. And it includes the instructions for the Tenzo, the Tenzo Kyokun, which always impressed me because, you know, there's no instructions for how to be an abbot. Right? <laughs> I don't tell you that at all. It's like the Tenzo is really critical. Food is really critical. And uh, in the introduction to this book, this is, oh, by the way, this is Tygen Layton, who translated the Song of the Grassroot Hut and Shohaku Okamori together, who translated this for us. And there's a foreword by Iko Narasaki Roshi. Um, and this is what Narasaki Roshi says. According to Dogen Zenji, a monastery is a community of people with bodhi mind, right, wisdom mind, who practice jijuyu zamai diligently in everything they encounter without an attitude of seeking 
gain, right? Without an attitude of seeking gain. Jijuyu Zamai, there's a whole sutra we chant with that title, Dogen again, which is the samadhi or concentration of self-fulfillment, where everything you encounter without separating self and others becomes one thing that you meet with your whole body and mind, dealing with it most thoroughly, says this Roshi. The inner reality of practice for such a community is described in the Shobogenzo and the manner for carrying it out in practice, the practice of everydayness, is in the Ehe Shingi, the monastic regulations. And, he's, and Dogen Zenji says that the pure standards are the body and mind of ancient Buddha. So we've been talking about meditation and you're all sitting there diligently doing that together and by yourself at the same time. So this is the, the performance of that. Zazen is also a kind of performance, but, but not in the sense of like, you know, a representation. It's the actuality of it, but it, there's a ritual to it. There's a ritual for everything in Zen. Had you noticed? All right. So the, the beginning of this with Dogen, the, the Dharma of taking food, Dogen says, a sutra says, if you can remain the same with food, all dharmas also remain the same. If all dharmas are the same, then also with food, you will remain the same. That's the end of the sutra that Dogen doesn't actually identify. Mm -hmm. Just let dharma be the same as food and let food be the same as dharma. For this reason, if dharmas are the dharma nature, then food is also the dharma nature. If the dharma is suchness, food also is suchness. If the dharma is the single mind, food also is the single mind. If the dharma is bodhi, food also is bodhi. They are named the same and their significance is the same. So it is said they are the same. You didn't know your soybeans had all that going on, did you? And then he goes into, he goes through these kinds of exhortations for a while. And then there are very detailed instructions for how to eat, how to enter the zendo, or not the zendo, how to enter the hall, what order to enter the hall, how to stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. And we are following most of it almost exactly, not the parts about entering and leaving and who gets to, you know, do what first. There, there are a few things that we have simplified in part because we don't have the monastic establishment, the, the buildings and, and as much of the hoopla <laughs> in most Zen centers in the United States. But the way we actually use our bowls is almost exactly what Dogen says. So this is an ancient practice. And he comments actually, it's very interesting about one place in which they deviate. And he says, it's about eating uh, with chopsticks and, and, and or spoons. He says, um, so he's already talked about, you know, how you actually uh, serve your, how you were served, receive food, etc. And he says, looking back to the decorum of Buddha in ancient India, the Tathagata and his disciples ate by rolling their rice into balls with their right hands. They did not use spoons or chopsticks. Buddha's children should know this. 
Emperors, sage, wheel-turning kings, and rulers of nations also ate by using their hands to roll rice into balls. <laughs> we should know this was the respectable manner. In India, monks who were ill who were ill used spoons, but everyone else used their hands. They had not yet heard the name or seen the shape of chopsticks. We can see that chopsticks are used solely in countries this side of China. Now we use them in accord with the style of the land and the customs of the region. So he makes he makes a big deal of this, right? He says, the deportment for eating with our hands long ago became obsolete, and so we do not have a teacher to show us the ancient way. Therefore, for a while, we have been using spoons and chopsticks and many bowls. So we use three, but there are five in a monk's, or sometimes six in a monk's set, and more of them can be used depending on the monastery and what's being served. Um, and not to make light of any of this, but he has um, a whole list of things that you should and shouldn't do. And I think it's a great commentary on how we are, even in a monastery, even while we're manifesting our Bodhi minds. <laughs> It sounds like he's dealing with a bunch of like high school students who are acting out like no spitballs, right? You know, don't use those rubber bands and fire them at each other. He says, unless you are sick, do not seek after extra soup or rice for yourself. Do not cover the soup with rice, hoping to get more by making it appear to be less. Do not look into other monks' bowls, arousing envy. <laughs> Just eat with your attention focused on your bowls. Do not quite eat balls of rice that are too big. Do not throw balls of rice into your mouth. <laughs> Do not take food and then leave it uneaten to be thrown away, right? This is one reason why we take just what we need and try to eat everything we take. You know, don't make noise, etc. Don't slurp your food. Don't lick your food. Buddha said, we should not stick out our tongue or lip our lips when we eat. We must study this, says Dogen. <laughs> Do not wave your hands around when you eat. Do not support your elbows on your knees when you eat. Do not scatter your food or play with it. Buddha said, while eating, do not scatter your bread or rice like a chicken. <laughs> do not pick up or eat your food with dirty hands. Do not make noise while eating by stirring up or sipping your food. And my favorite, <clears throat> Buddha said, do not heap up your food like a stupa. You all know what a stupa is? It's a big, it's a big mound, a burial mound, right? So when I was a server at Tassahara, I remember uh, I almost lost it. I was serving salad, and you know it's in the small bowl, and people are sometimes really greedy for salad. They want a lot of salad, and they start mashing it down with their thumbs, <laughs> right? And then so you end up constructing this thing by leaf, which is this tower of greens, and you're just waiting. Please do this. And one day, this this phrase, "Do not heap up your food like a stupid here," and I just biting my lip, biting my lip. <laughs> Finally, the person released me, and I was able to go on without dropping the salad. Do not fill your bowls to overflowing. Do not mix soup into the rice in your first bowl. This is why we say, you know, don't mix your anything into your first bowl. Do not stir side dishes into the first bowl. Do not eat great mouthfuls like a monkey storing up food in its cheek and gnawing. <laughs> he could be funny. He could be, he could be brutal, but he could be funny. <clears throat> and so on. Um, don't scratch your head and let dandruff fall into your bowls. 
Do not shake your body, hold your knees, sit crouching over, yawn or sniffle loudly, and on and on. Um, my favorite in this list is um, place inedible scraps or fruit pits out of sight behind your bowls where they cannot provoke your neighbor's distaste. So right be kind to your neighbor. If there is leftover food or fruit in your neighbor's bowl, do not accept it, even if it's offered to you. Do you want my rice? <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, there are pages of this. I mean, literally, literally pages of this kind of thing. Don't puff on your food to warm it. Don't blow on your food to cool it off. So, um, some of this is obviously, you know, attempting to draw attention to things that he's seeing. And he said, this is not the, this is not how a Buddha eats. So I think Linda Ruth actually, uh, who is a great instructor of how to eat with your bowls, said that in my first practice period about eating the way a Buddha eats. And she was always very upright and held her bowl up to her face close instead of leaning over. That made a big impression on me, how upright she was. And the food went right in, like the spoon was this way, you know? And it has the advantage also that you don't spill stuff on your okata, but or on your rakasu, but there's a dignity in it, right? And you're forced to attend to it when you do that. It's right there, right in front of you. So this is why we do these things. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a practice. Um, it's, a, it's, it's bringing the mind of meditation to your food. So I just wanted to share the source. And if you have time and interest, you can read Dogen's Pure Standards. Um, <clears throat> and they're all about how we work with our minds when meeting the thing that probably is the most difficult for most of us to feel na totally natural about, and that's food. Getting what we don't want, not getting what we want, getting too much of one thing and not enough of another thing. One other, one last story about practice periods. Um, at, at Tatahara, so this is, you know, a monastic community, um, you get, we eat orioki all day long, most days, but as soon as the new meal is over, something called the back door of the kitchen is open. And there's a counter at the back door of the kitchen and the Tenzo offers additional food, supplemental food. Sometimes it's leftovers, but there's almost always peanut butter and jelly and rice crackers and stuff like that. So if you're hungry, you can go and help yourself at the back door. Um, and a, a Dharma friend of mine tried to eat nothing but Oriyoki for the first practice period, maybe two, and lost a lot of weight that way. And then he realized that if he just ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day after lunch, he was okay, right? He had a, made a thick peanut butter and jelly sandwich and that kept his weight stable. The men tend to lose weight. Um, the women tend to gain weight. I don't know why exactly, but, but um, during sashin, this is withdrawn, right? Is it still the case? Yes. So uh, during sashin, the back door goes away. There's fruit. Just fruit, there's fruit. So you can get a piece of fruit if you're hungry, but that's it. And we're supposed to accept what's offered and we're supposed to basically deal <laughs> with what's offered and not having what we normally expect. And um, 
the head student, the Chousseau, that first practice period that I did, um, one day came into the kitchen while I was working and deposited a very large bag of granola, a Ziploc bag of granola on the Tenzo's desk with a note that said, I will explain after Sashin. <laughs> and what happened is that they were afraid they were going to be hungry during Sashin. So they saved up, they stored up granola, which is really good granola. They make it themselves at Tassajara. They stored it up from, from our day off breakfast and bag lunch, where you can take some for yourself as a you know, snack or a supplement. And she had squirreled this away for weeks, probably, <laughs> until the session. And then she felt guilty. She felt guilty that she'd done this and not maintained the spirit of session and done something that the rest of the community hadn't done. Or maybe they had, but as the head student, she felt, I need to set an example. And she repented, even if no one knew that she had this in her room. Probably no one knew. But she gave it up in the spirit of joining the, what the community was doing or was being asked to do. So <clears throat> this practice of food goes really deep. Um, it is our life that we are sustaining for the sake of enlightenment, and it, we are in complete relationship with everything. Servers and receivers who just keep rotating, right? And the entire universe. Thank you very much. I look forward to lunch. Tenzo has left. Chantar <laughs> <laughs> after. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, this, I really appreciate uh, talking about this. It's something that uh, my teacher, Sojin Noisman, like to talk about a lot. My, that's my definition of Gigi Uzama is how he related to work. Uh. Uh, yeah, something I can only aspire to. Uh, and Blanche uh, Hartman, she used to say, just keep your eyes down and enjoy your meal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep, like that. Keep your eyes down, down and enjoy your meal. Yeah, that's a good definition. <clears throat> um, but I, on a personal note, I wanted to say I, I don't have anything communicable either. Uh, but sometimes uh, food gives me a sneezing fit. <laughs> yeah, which happened this morning. Uh -huh. uh, it's called a satiation response. It's a thing. Um, and it's it's just you know something I live with, but uh, in Oyoki I cannot excuse myself from the table. So <laughs> I just wanted to say that you know I had a big sneezing fit this morning and and uh, I'm fine. Fit as a fiddle. Uh, it's just something that happens occasionally when I eat. Thank you. Yeah, I <clears throat> I have also a, a choking reflex sometimes, and dry rice without mm -hmm. any water can trigger it. So some of you who are serving me may notice that I tend to take small amounts of rice. And that's why, because I don't want to have to excuse myself. I can't, I can't, I can neither swallow it nor get rid of it here. So I don't want to have to get up and leave. And so I just restrict what I, what I take out of consideration for the months. <laughs> and if I'm hungry, you know, a little later. There are many wonderful stories about serving and being served. I won't go into so them. Many. So many, so many spilling things, 
another Linda Ruth story. She she was a new server, and Linda Ruth Cuts is you know a former abbess of San Francisco Zen Center, and anyway, very very venerable teacher. Um, she uh, once ladled carrots, hot carrots, instead of into the bowl of the uh, much more senior person that she was serving, but into their lap. Mm -hmm. right? So if you're a server, everything that could possibly go wrong has already happened. Everything has been spilled. Everything has been dropped. Everything has been slopped. Don't, right? And if you're a person who drops something or spills something on yourself, I once dropped a whole tray of little bowls of um, sour cream, mm -hmm. which hit the floor and splashed up on my okesa. Mm -hmm. And the and the soku said, "Go, <laughs> just go, take it off, wash it right away." It's all just happening in emptiness. 